This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 95, recorded on January 27, 2022. I'm your co-host, Brenda Weigel, from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. I'm here along with my co-host, Dr. Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. Hi, Tim. Hey, Brenda. And today, it is actually my absolute honor and pleasure to introduce two, I'm gonna call them rock stars of solving kids cancer. And it really will highlight some amazing insights from the patient advocate point of view with regards to pediatric drug development. They teamed up with many other advocates to uh, publish just in the last few weeks in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, When Innovation and Commercialization Collide a patient advocate view. Today we are joined by Donna Ludwinski and Nick Bird. I am just so thrilled to have both of you here. For some of you, they don't require introduction, but for some they do. Um, Donna uh, is active as a research advocate in solving kids' cancer for the last many years, since her son Eric died of neuroblastoma at the age of 24 in 2010, having been originally diagnosed in 1991. She serves on the National Cancer Institute Pediatric Central Review Board, is the FDA patient representative for advisory committees. She is a member of the New Approaches to Neuroblastoma Therapy, also known as NANT, Parent Advisory Council, and a former member of the board of directors of CAC-2, which is also known as Coalition Against Childhood Cancer. Donna has a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering and lives in West Virginia with her husband, Paul. She enjoys time with their three grown children, their spouses, and six grandchildren. Nick Bird. Nick is now the chair of the Board of Trustees of Solving Kids Cancer UK. He is the father to Adam, who was diagnosed in 2009 with high-risk neuroblastoma that was ultimately chemorefractory, and he underwent treatment in the UK, Germany, and the United States. Unfortunately, dying of his disease in 2013 at home with his family. Nick is also a former member of the UK National Cancer Research Institute Children's Cancer Group, and currently serves as a member of their neuroblastoma subcommittee. He is chair of the Innovative Therapies for Children with Cancer, also known as ITCC Advocate Committee, and parent and public voice partner for the NHS England Clinical Reference Group for Children and Young People's Cancer. Nick lives in Epsom with wife Allison and Adam's two siblings, Jacob and Jessica. And welcome. And so, Nick, I am fascinated by. What led you to want to really start addressing these issues around innovation and commercialization of particularly in this case, uh, looking at neuroblastoma therapy? But 
what moved you to pull this together and really come out with such a strong voice for the patient and family? Well, thank you for the introduction. I guess it was a combination of things, actually. And like a lot of things, it, it wasn't a single moment in time. It was it was a journey to get there. So actually, Adam was in, in Europe, was one of the children who was treated on the initial feasibility study of dinatuxumab beta in Germany. And so that was where I personally first came across kind of anti-GD2 therapy as one of the first parents to enroll their children in Europe. And then in 2016, during the nice appraisal of unituxin by United Therapeutics in the UK, I was a patient expert on that process, which ultimately led to NICE rejecting unituxin. And then together with Donna um, and two other parents, SKC, we lodged an appeal against the NICE decision to not approve um, unituxin. And that was the first time that a charity had actually unilaterally appealed a decision by NICE. So unbeknownst to us, United Therapeutics were unable to supply the drug into Europe. And so although that appeal was successful, they, they withdrew their marketing authorization. That was my first foray into digging deep into anti-GD2. And then came the approval of Dinatuximab Beta by the EMA and subsequently by NICE, of which I was a patient expert. And then in 2018, I was invited to the Multi-Stakeholder Accelerate Conference in Belgium to present the history of anti-GD2 as one of the few drugs that was approved and licensed in children. Obviously, that required a ton of research to understand you know, the, the near three-decade history of anti-GD2 therapy all the way through, ultimately, to FDA and EMA approval. And I shared the stage that day with... Dr. Crystal Mackle, who was talking about cell therapy and, and I guess presenting then um, with approved therapies. And, and at the time, there were a number of clinical trials ongoing within North America, but there was, there was only one funded and as yet to open study in Europe. The issue of now being able to use drugs that are approved and licensed and reimbursed, obviously, in frontline therapy to continue to innovate. It, that's really where it first cropped up. And then if we fast forward, becoming more involved in some of the Accelerate initiatives, pediatric strategy forums, uh, and just reflecting on some of the conversations around CAR T cells, with Kimariah being, again, approved either for refractory patients or, or patients who have failed two prior frontline, uh, two prior relapse therapies. And the continued innovation in neuroblastoma with chemo immunotherapy, which again, Europe is and was behind North America in terms of momentum taking that forward. And it occurred to me that there, there were two things at play here. One, within neuroblastoma itself, the ability to move chemoimmunotherapy forward as rapidly as possible to benefit children with neuroblastoma. And on the back of that, because of GD2 being a good target in neuroblastoma and CD19, obviously in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, 
it's a case study of what I think will be issues that will affect other pediatric cancers when promising new agents, you know, finally uh, are uncovered in those diseases. So that's really the, the two motivations. So Nick, I want to compliment you on not only all the uh, effort and success you put into sort of moving that through and, and, and becoming aware of all the processes and the challenges and limitations, but, but also sharing them with the rest of the community in this pu publication. You know, I'm an academician, academic pediatric uh, hematologist, oncologist. Through your paper, I realized that those of us in academia, when it comes to drug development, we think very differently than those in industry. And so, Donna, you, I see, you know, before COVID, would see you at all the academic meetings all the time at various places, including Australia and other places. And then you also live in the FDA world, being on the advisory committees. So can you tell us maybe a brief summary from your paper, what the, the differences in that you've seen, how academics think in terms of drug development and planning studies and, and how much of what we do as academics may not even count toward uh, the FDA approval of a drug, because that's ultimately all of our goals. So we really need to align those approaches. Well, I thank you, Tim. That is a great question. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term post-hole history, where you just take one thing and you learn about that one thing, you know, from beginning to end. I think this, this case study, so to speak, is a, a good example of post-hole because it, it's a holistic look from beginning to end and, and really questioning what does the future look like and, and drawing out some of these considerations. Whereas academics, obviously you're jug juggling, first of all, a bunch of different diseases any number of agents that are potentially promising. And then you throw combinations in there and the permutations become infinite, right? So I think it would be a tall stretch for an academic to really be thinking about um, what happens after a drug is approved and even their role in getting to that approval because of all of the other things um, that are going on simultaneously. So. I think maybe that's a good example of where the advocate who can be pretty um, head down focused, you know, in particular, a case like this, um, to, to really look deeply into that and, and question what's going on. So because Nick and I have worked together for many, many years and and by the way, everything Nick does in the advocate world is purely volunteer. So I always, you know, I still can't believe how much he's able to accomplish, you know, with a real job on the side. <laughs> um, but the thing is, because we're so closely aligned in terms of understanding what's going on, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, we see what is essentially terrible disparities uh, between what's going on in Europe and what's going on in the U.S. So if you look at just the sheer number of uh, combination studies that are going on with a drug like denatuximab and compare that to Europe, it's just shocking. So every day we're seeing examples of something that looks like there's very good data behind it. You know, the, the chemoimmunotherapy combination that's talked about in the paper is pretty well established. I mean, the data was first released in 2016. Now, fast forward six years later, children in, in Europe aren't able to get that at all, even though there's a very, very good rationale and, and data set behind that. So, so as advocates, we're calling this out and saying now, you know, what, are, what can we do about this? And what, what can we do to potentially incentivize or, you know, is, is it a carrot or a stick? 
you know, with, with industry to make sure that they make these drugs available for further innovation. Um, Nick is intimately aware of how difficult it was um, getting dinatuximab beta available for any studies in Europe, you know, after it, the one indication that um, they have, and, and it's a very frustrating uh, process. So all that said, I think it's a, it, it's a good time to pause and, and kind of think through this, you know, longitudinal. I mean, the, the intention of the intention of when publishing or when we tried to submit it to to JCO to get it published, you know, as advocates, if you have a message, you're only as good as being able to deliver your messages to the audience that you want to hear them. And in this case, it was the academic clinical research community, but also it was industry, it was regulators, because I think... The, the solution to this, uh, and I kind of use a solution, the word solution advisedly, as in to make things more effective and more efficient, is genuinely a multi-stakeholder process. And so, you know, if you look at, for example, chemo immunotherapy in the United States, that's been, you know, there's been hundreds of children who have been treated with the com that combination, and yet because of the limitations in the way that the studies themselves were conducted and the data was collected, you know, United Therapeutics have been unable to get a license expansion for that patient population. And whilst these things happen in that study, you know, those studies were instigated almost a decade ago, the point is to learn from the past and not repeat that in the future, whether that be in neuroblastoma or in some other disease. And then in terms of Europe, I think there are there are particular challenges within Europe because although, you know, and I say this, I say this as somebody from the UK who is now no longer under the auspices of the European Medicines Agency, but within in Europe you have regulator or regulators, the EMA and HMRA, MHRA in the case of the UK. But then once a drug is approved by the regulator, it still needs to be approved by each health technology assessment agency for reimbursement within each country. That's still a national competency. So there are whole swathes of challenges in order to take a drug, deliver the clinical trial that's going to generate the scientific evidence um, that in your world might make it a standard of care. But of course, it's not standard of care unless it can be prescribed for for patients on national healthcare systems. Building on that, um, and you alluded to this, is that you really are using sort of the neuroblastoma story for chemoimmunotherapy as a model, as a lesson learned for sort of how we can think about moving forward for other types of, of agents. And you mentioned, you know, Kim Raya, you mentioned other things um, potentially in that mix. Do you feel there are key steps that would enhance our ability to learn from these past uh, challenges with neuroblastoma and building on sort of what Tim was saying is how can we in the academic community and you in the advocacy community and then with the regulators and the, the, the pharma industry really take actionable steps to 
to learn from this as we move other other therapies forward. So you're asking you're asking me the simple questions. I then. did ask you a super <laughs> simple question. <laughs> And and it's partly if we're going to take steps forward in lessons learned, what what do you think are some of those key things that that may be happening or or certain, you know, things that we can can build on to try to to learn from this experience, Um, recognizing we're all in different areas? I I mean, I think in terms of. I mean, there are a bunch of challenges, obviously, in terms of, of clinical trial design. I think we say in the paper that from the outset, clinical trials have to set, satisfy, you know, all the stakeholders. Clinical trials have to satisfy, you know, they have to be scientifically robust to satisfy the academic clinical research community. But they also have to satisfy the criteria required of regulators and of, and of payers. Early engagement of those um, different, and as it says, planning for successful trials, because ultimately, you know, we want these trials to succeed and we want effective drug to become available to children. So that's one thing. You know, the problem of being able to get hold of high cost drugs and use them in, in clinical trials is, uh, is an issue in and of itself. You know, these these conversations are moving forward, as we said in the paper, within the Accelerate multi-stakeholder platform to try and figure out what might be some of the best solutions around this. Because chemoimmunotherapy, for example, when chemotherapy is standard of care, then adding a novel agent to chemotherapy in relapse refractory setting is the typical way of evaluating that novel agent. But if you have a a drug which is approved and reimbursed for frontline standard of care, but it's not approved and reimbursed in a relapse refractory setting, how can you still get access to it to use it as a backbone to evaluate the, you know, the addition of new novel agents? It's those kind of challenges that we need to find solutions to that work for, well, first and foremost, that work for children so that, that children are gaining access as rapidly as possible to promising new therapies. But obviously, that work for the researchers, for industry. Donna, I don't know if you've got anything to add on. Yeah, I think, well, you brought up the payers and I, you know, that multi-stakeholder approach, you know, to, to tackling this huge problem, it's key. And I don't know that that we've reached that um, status where, you know, the, the payers are involved in these conversations, because obviously it's a massively different situation in the U.S. where drugs can be prescribed off-label. Data may not be collected at all on those um, children. And so you can have this, you know, just enormous uh, lost opportunity to prove that that is actually something there's meaningful, uh, you know, data there. But whereas in Europe, you simply can't do that. And, and uh, you know, as uh, Nick pointed out in the paper, it's sketchy at best, you know, to, to try to access these. So I think, Nick, when you were saying, you know, it, it has to be a multi-stakeholder, but there may be value in having, um, you know, advocates who are really interested in that particular drug or that particular disease or even the treatment pathway, because, you know, in this situation, you've got now different elements to be looking at potentially the same combination. Do you do it in frontline? Do you do you know, during the induction? Do you do it 
you know, during the maintenance phase, there's a trial going on right now with, you know, standard immunotherapy, or do you do it only in the relapse and, and refractory setting? So you've got all of these different um, spots to look at, as well as all these different potential combinations. So I think early discussions um, and, and potentially involving advocates as well as, you know, obviously industry has to be involved in those conversations. It's their drug, but maybe, you know, and then how we bring in the payer question, I, I don't know, but I think it's really important. Now, the uh, going back to the issue that the academic versus versus industry and, and let alone the difference between Europe and, and the U.S. and all the constraints that, that, that may be in one or the other place. When we think of doing a clinical trial in academics, OK, we, we think, OK, we're going to either pitch an idea to industry and they're going to run it and. And we can maybe we run the trial, but they sponsor it and pay for it and everything. That's sort of the, the gold standard. And then everything would be fine. Right. They have all the data. They can help design it the way they need it. But most of the time, it seems like we're either either convincing them to just give us the drug or cross reference their IND for a new trial, in which both of which they may not be involved with the design at all. Or we write a grant. Or, you know, to some agency or NIH or, or others to, to propose a clinical trial of a drug that's out there, but for a new either indication or a new uh, application or a new combination may or may not require an IND. But in many of those cases, the, the company isn't interested in becoming involved until we show them some really good data. And if we do, maybe they will get, get involved. But, but until then, uh, they may not. We may be doing this on our own, in which case industry is not involved in the trial design, uh, the, the biomarkers being studied or, or the data that's collected. And so after reading your paper, I'm like, well, it seems like all that work can some, is sometimes wasted. I mean, not usable. Right. So and you know, Tim, I did a quick uh, search in PubMed to look at 30 years. How many clinical trial publications were there? It's easy to you know trim it down to just clinical trials. Pick an indication like neuroblastoma. Over 700 trial papers are in 30 years, but how many drugs are used in frontline new drugs? I mean, it's a, it's a glaring um, uh, way to quantify what you just said, which is a lot of trials. We know there are a lot of early phase trials in pediatric cancer, but how many of those, you know, march forward and actually change the way that the, that disease is treated? And we know that that's there's a woeful lack of new um, therapies and and there is something in that um, in that system that things are getting lost somehow. I mean, if there were incredibly efficacious um, agents or combinations, for whatever reason, that those are not moving forward for the most part. I mean, it's it's a generalization, but for the most part, so what's the answer? Should industry should we always get industry involved right away at the beginning of an idea, but but maybe they're not engaged or they don't have the bandwidth or don't want to yet. We think it's a great idea, so we want to move it forward somehow. I think Nick's point about planning for success requires that conversation with them because if you if you start with the what if, what if this is you know this going to produce good data and it's going to be fit for filing? Um, you know what what is industry's role and commitment you know to advancing that drug for that disease. And it takes careful thought to think through, I feel it takes careful thought to look at exactly what indication is because some of the drugs that have been approved have narrow indications like uh, Nick brought up Kim Raya, you know, 
when is that ever going to be used when, for children diagnosed with leukemia today? You know, what, and that's a, that's a huge question, right? So, so the indications might be um, pretty narrow and and you know, kind of a, a small subset. You have to think through how is it still going to advance so, so that you know something that is that's great is is going to be applicable to more situations. I think you raised the issue as well that I think is is critical that in the academic world, when you're thinking about a clinical trial and you're thinking about moving something forward, it, there's a real scientific intent. So you're b- being driven by maybe really looking at the science and not thinking necessarily about how can I design this to actually meet a regulatory requirement, ultimately making the drug or or treatment available more widely in the future. because. I think, and so I also think that mindset of really understanding what's required on the regulatory side. And I think that what you demonstrated beautifully, Nick, in the uh, manuscript is that that was an afterthought and a big afterthought um, for the development of the targeted GD2 therapies that ultimately some of that data could never be it produced that that you needed. And and I think there is that real lack of understanding, but also engagement with regulatory authorities early on that goes beyond the industry piece, because if this trials are being done through collaborative groups like ITCC, the Children's Oncology Group, they may be accessing a drug not necessarily in conjunction and partnership with a pharma uh, partner. It may be through some other type of access. So I think, um, and I don't know if you want to comment on as advocates, how can we facilitate potentially engagement very early on of, of sort of understanding that regulatory landscape? I mean, I think the first thing to say is obviously we we co-authored the manuscript, but as advocates, we are still learning more and more every day and our thoughts and views are formulating every single day. And especially when you consider, um, you know, as an advocate, I could purely specialise in regulatory science and in, and in you know, uh, HTA processes, et cetera. But it's just something that that you know we dip in and out of um, because of time constraints. Um, I I do think, and again, this is evolving, so that's kind of why I qualified it. <laughs> I do think that what you said, and and both Unituxin and Carziba were obviously approved on the back of academic clinical trials that were initiated without any drug company support. The NCI manufactured the drug for the 0032 study and CIPN themselves um, instigated manufacture of denatuximab beta for the CIPN studies. And when it comes to regulators and, and reimbursement agencies, holding academic clinical trials to the same standards of industry without there being government agency support 
to bring that infrastructure and the monitoring, et cetera, up to the level that's required. And certainly in in my experience with NICE, for example, there was no, uh, I don't want to say appreciation, but there was certainly no leniency for the fact that this trial was conducted in a 200 plus cooperative group, multi-institution setting. Um, and all the challenges that comes with conducting those studies in rare patient populations, just in order to try and get the kind of scientifically valid data. So I do think it is an ongoing evolution and education and trying to, to raise, if you like, the, the understanding and appreciation of what's required of academic clinical trials, but also on the part of government agencies, of regulators, to make sure that the tools and the support is in place to enable those kind of studies to be conducted, you know, because actually companies, like you say, may not want to take things forward or commercialize drugs until, you know, they're practically handed it on a plate and and gift wrapped and it all has to be there and, and you know, in a form that's going to deliver for the regulatory agencies and the and reimbursement. You know, I, I think one exciting um, piece of this is is already um, near complete, and that is the Fit for Filing Group with Accelerate spent a couple years um, discussing this in depth. And so, it, so you have an advocate, but you have the um, academics, and you have the uh, regulators, both from the U.S. and and Europe, and, and industry people putting together a, a nice piece to really educate all of us on those different perspectives and different roles with, with that you come into fit for filing studies. And um, that paper has been submitted to JCO. So it should be coming out soon. And the goal of the group is to um, continue on educating, especially for the academics who are, they're the scientists, they're the ones, you know, wanting to see what is tested and is tested in a meaningful way in children, but to take that, you know, that question a little further and saying, well, what if this is, what if this works and, um, and what, what's required for the studies. And one of the simple conclusions so far that has already been quite obvious, you know, when Nick is referring to, you know, the, the data quality, it, it requires more resources. So who's going to pay for that? And so the, the idea of really kind of pushing the envelope when industry is, is partnering um, on these studies to make sure that the resources are there um, and, you know, not leaving it to the academics to have to, you know, come up with bigger budgets, you know, to run these trials when it's for the company's good to have that data available um, for potential filing. So I think that's, you know, a big step forward in this whole uh, conversation. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how, you know, how that um, takes us and advances it. So we, we, we've gone farther over time than usual. Believe it or not, I mean, it seems like we just just started talking. And I, but I also think this is a conversation that needs to continue uh, in many different forums uh, over over much longer time. And hopefully, this podcast will serve as a instigator of such conversations uh, amongst all the different kinds of stakeholders you've described. But I, I think we're going to need to wrap it up, unfortunately. But um, maybe, uh, Brenda, do you have any last questions for our guests? 
I wouldn't say a question. I just will say a comment of, of thank you for uh, starting this conversation. I think we are starting and I think there's a long road ahead. I look forward to seeing sort of the next publication, the Fit for Filing uh, coming out in, in JCO. And then really kind of looking back and saying, you know, having another conversation, have have we moved forward? Have we learned from this? And and have have we have, are we doing better? And so I, it's a real opportunity to continue the conversation. And I thank both of you immensely for for that. I think that, you know, you wrapped it up perfectly because that was and is the intention of publishing the manuscript is to instigate those conversations. Well, thank you for doing that. And we're, we're sorry for both of your losses, but grateful that you're really turning them into something positive for other people. And we know, uh, I know that you've enlightened me, not uh, over the years for Donna, for sure, and, uh, but certainly from this paper and will continue to, to enlighten our, our whole field. So thank you for all your work. Thank you very much for hosting me. Yes. So that's it. Uh, thanks. To the rest of the teams as well for Solving Kids Cancer, both here and abroad. Solving Kids Cancer is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.